Good morning. Today we're going to continue our series begun by Tracy just a couple of weeks ago called Coming Back to the Church and Learning from God's Ancient People Under Ezra. We intend to work through this 10-chapter book, which you'll uh, recall describes the return of some 50,000 of the Jewish exiles from Babylon in 538 BC and the restoration of life and worship in Jerusalem. When Ch Tracy and I were originally discussing this series, it was natural that we should begin, or that she should begin with uh, chapter 1, and that I would then follow on with chapter 3. We were going to skip chapter 2, because chapter 2 is, after all, only a list of names. I mean, really, who of you watching here this morning can honestly say that they've ever read Ezra chapter 2? Now, if you have, perhaps you'd like to raise your hand so we can have a look and see. Yes, not too many. I see Graham has got his hand up. Stan probably has his up, but probably not too many others. How then could this list of names possibly contribute to our series? Then Tracy had second thoughts. She sent me an email that read as follows. I've decided to leave your text as chapter two because it's all about people and the church is all about people. Here's a few ideas and questions to think about. I wonder why God inspired the list of names to be kept. Surely not to just satisfy a, an archivist or historian, but because people matter. As we return to church, what can we be doing to value our people and to value our diversity? The people of God under Ezra were all Jewish people, which is in stark contrast to the gospel era in which all of us were welcomed into the church. What's so good about having a diverse group of people in the church? Are there people in Warrigal who are not part of our church and how can we welcome them in? In an earlier part of the same email, Tracy threw out other questions which we should hold in our thoughts as we work through this book of Ezra. She asks, what is God doing in his church through this pandemic? Apart from the sadness of it all, it's been an opportunity for us to think about what the church is. It is people, not the buildings that they worship in. Now that we're preparing to return, I don't want us to just pick up where we left off. I'd like us to keep asking the question, what are we learning as a church during this epidemic? What do we keep from pre-COVID times? What do we discard? What new things do we prioritize? Shifting out of our buildings for the better part of the year is an opportunity, has been an opportunity to gain a new perspective. And I think the book of Ezra, describing as it does the reforms and experiences under Ezra as God's people journey back to Jerusalem, can surely be instructive to us too. And that's the end of Tracy's email. The Jews were in exile in Babylon for 70 years, exactly, in fact, the period prophesied by Jeremiah. That's about two, perhaps three generations. And it meant that the majority returning, unless much older than 70, had never been there before. 
So they were returning to something that, although visually unfamiliar, would have no doubt been told to them in stories around the fires by their elders numerous times over the years. We've been exiled from, from our church here for, let's say, about seven months. <clears throat> we'll use the figure seven because it's a very biblical figure. <clears throat> and unfortunately, it would appear that we're very low on our government's priorities. We don't seem to get a mention, do we, about when it comes to a, a roadmap for reopening. Can it be justified? I don't know about you, but I was feeling a little bit cheated until it was pointed out to me that we are, we do get very close and touchy at church. We used to, of course, share the chalice, but with perhaps some prescience, even before COVID-19, we've begun serving individual portions. But we also sing. And when we sing, we exhale matter. Now, I'm in a choir, the Bobo Singers, and we've been, we haven't really got together this, this year. Uh, and we've all been agitating to get back together. Then our pianist told of an item that he's seen on the news. In the USA, there's a smallish town about 100 kilometers out of Seattle, which had no known cases of COVID-19. In Seattle, it was rife. So the choir masters decided that it'd be okay if the choir got together for a practice. Of the 100 choir members, 60 turned up for the practice. Within three weeks, 35 had COVID virus, three of them died. That's a country town, 100 kilometres from the big city. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? So we must be patient. Be ready for the long haul and make our plans accordingly. I heard someone say on the radio just yesterday that we could be wearing masks for five years or more. So back to our list of names. What use is it? One joker has suggested that it's a good list to examine, to examine if you're looking for baby names with a difference, like Backbuck or Asmareth, or perhaps you like Gazam, Gazam Gilbert. No, I'm not sure I like that. Now, you mightn't spend rapturous hours reading chapter two during your quiet time, but we're all told, but we are told that all scripture is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction and training. And so we really shouldn't ignore it. There was certainly one practical use for it for Ezra in that it could legitimize land rights and claims for the exiles returning to their farms and properties. But Derek Kidner in his book series, Old Bible Commentaries, sees much more than this when he observes this chapter, however uninviting it may seem, is a monument to God's care and to Israel's vitality. The thousands of homecomers are not lumped together, but are in characteristic biblical fashion related to those local and family circles which humanize a society and orientate an individual. 
Family circles which humanize a society and orientate an individual. Each family mattered and each individual mattered. And for the people's part, their tenacious memory of places and relationships, still strong after two generations in exile, showed a genuine refusal, refusal to be robbed of either their past or their future. He further makes the point that the fundamental motive for this careful grouping was not social, but religious. In this new opportunity for Israel to live up to its calling, every priest must have his credentials and every member, every parishioner, have his, credential, his or her credentials too. Credentials too. We, also will be, we also will be returning to our church after exile each of us with our own credentials, our own lives' experiences to offer. In our New Testament reading today from Romans, and there was an, another list, Paul lists those people closely involved with him in spreading the gospel. And it's a diverse list indeed. He sends his personal greetings to Romans and Greeks, Jews and Gentiles, men and women, prisoners and prominent citizens. Even then, the church's base was very broad. It crossed cultural, social, and economic lines. I've observed, since Lynn and I returned to Gippsland 17 years ago, what a predominantly white Anglo-Saxon population we have here. Yes, sure, there are a number of us here from the Indian subcontinent, who we mostly bump into when we go to the chemist, the doctor or the dentist. And they're all lovely. And I know we'd all be happy to welcome many more here. But do we have a diverse congregation here? So let's not apply too narrow an application to the word diverse. <clears throat> let's consider, in our congregation, we have families and singles. We have the very young, very old, and lots in between. We have the rich and the not so rich, the university educated and the non-university educated, those who've been churchgoers all their lives and those who've come to Christ later in life, the healthy and the unwell, the lonely and the gregarious. And if we look at the various jobs we do, we have engineers, teachers, small business owners, Farmers, doctors, office workers, tradesmen, physios, pastors, pharmacists, dentists, shopkeepers, mechanics, artists, missionaries, nurses. What a whole heap of different professions. Do you know all we need now is for a lion tamer to join our congregation and the list it would indeed be complete. A list that certainly compares well with Paul's. And we all have our own unique life's experiences, together with the lessons that we've learned to pass on. Working together, what great things we could achieve. In closing this chapter, in closing this chapter two of Ezra shows the restored nation, orderly, structured, and ready for its main purpose, namely worship. 
There are many lessons for us here for when we return home from our COVID exile to our church, our church family and our church family. The main one being that God is faithful to his chosen people. The chapter concludes by telling that one of the first things the various heads of households did upon arriving in Jerusalem was to give generously towards the rebuilding of the temple, showing their commitment to the Lord and to the buildings in which they would worship him. There'll be no call for us to splash out on our buildings when we return to church. A little maintenance perhaps, but no rebuilding required. Even still, there were costs involved in maintenance, paying our minister, etc. And how wonderful it is that through all these months, our givings have held up, even at times increased. And our bank balance is looking pretty good considering. It's as though we've collectively have not acknowledged that if we can do nothing else in this close down, at least we can keep giving. Well done, everyone. Others are not so lucky. Many, many churches rely on their op shops for big slices of their income. And that source, of course, has been completely cut off. Others, many others, have struggled to pay their way for years and this lockdown could, in fact, finish them off. I've been on a church council, church council since 1969 in half a dozen or so churches, and most meetings find us shaking our heads, questioning, can we afford it? And you know what? We're almost always talking about, yes, the church or the hall, repair or maintenance. We can usually afford our minister. We can mostly afford to pay the, the diocese assessment, but we can't spring 20,000 to repair the church roof or 10,000 to upgrade the kitchen or toilets. Our church buildings are wonderful, but they cost. How long can we afford the upkeep they deserve? And yet we're all aware of small, usually independent church groups who meet in sheds on industrial estates. I have, it, I have sometimes, a few times over the years, made one-off visits to a few of these. They're Spartan to say the least. Some with collections of assorted op shop chairs, which they seldom of course use because they're so busy standing up in excitement praising God, and yet they always seem to have excellent musicians and lots of families with excited children. Nothing else, except for their obvious love of God and their love of family and each other. I've sometimes found myself wondering what on earth do they find to talk about at their council meetings. So we have to confront the question, can we as a church individually and collectively continue with these high maintenance, very costly premises, which for most of the week stand empty. I'm not at all suggesting that we should knock them down, although some will certainly go, or become another heavenly pancakes outlet, or can we do better, or can we have better use for them? So many, as I said, stand empty for sometimes six days a week. A lot more church amalgamations are no doubt in the offing. 
Not that I'd anticipate that the Jewish church would close down and come over here to us, to worship with us. But I know there are smaller assemblies of Christians who meet in homes or scout halls, etc., who no doubt would be very happy to use our halls or church. A friend of mine in uh, suburban uh, Melbourne has said that they became aware of a group of Syrian immigrants and refugees who met in the local park to worship. So they offered to share the facilities of their church, which was accepted. And where in the beginning they held separate services, over a period they joined more and more often in combined services, each group making some concession to their usual traditional way of worship. We have to think outside the box, as they did. In Curranbarra, where Lynn and I just spent the first 14 years of our retirement, we were in a lovely church with a small congregation of perhaps 30. Sadly, the Sunday school closed down a few months after we arrived. But there were five churches in Curranbarra, and there were two particularly that you couldn't help but admire. The Baptist Church met in a very dilapidated church building. It was, in fact, the oldest church building still standing, only just standing, in Curranbarra. We attended a few combined services there for World Day of Prayer and that sort of thing. They had lots of family there, and their services just brimmed over with love and cheering. Ian, the, pa Ian, the pastor, was by profession a research chemist, but he gave that away when he and his family came to Curranbarra and took charge of the church. They couldn't really afford to pay him. And so he got a four day a week job as the maintenance man at the Carinia aged care facility there. Now I know that some of you would know of the Carinia aged care facility. God could not have used him better. He was like a glowing light to the residents as he fixed their doors or their windows. And he was always so busy because residents looked for excuses to get a visit from him. And when he held memorial services there for residents who'd passed on, it was so lovely and sincere because he knew them all so well. And many outsiders, including myself, would find excuses to be there too. I was a volunteer at that facility. Theirs was a very thriving church, very able, to pay its way. The other church which we admired were the AOGs, the Assemblies of God. They met in a series of sheds which looked as if they had once been the old council work depot. They too appeared to be thriving. They had a wonderful music ministry of about 10 very gifted musicians with an oboe, a couple of saxophones, flute, guitar, violin, and so on. Their pastor was, well actually literally at that time was, a plumber. He had his own business, which he managed to run whilst doing his pastoral duties. Every now and again the sheds, mostly corrugated iron, would get a repaint. But then, when you think of it, God loves people, not bricks. Sadly, the Uniting Church closed its doors last year when their minister retired and they couldn't find a replacement. They could only offer to pay wages for three days a week. Some of their parishioners are now attending our Anglican church there, which is just across the road.
And I don't think God minds where we worship. Having just read the last couple of paragraphs, I'd hate Tracy to think there's any suggestion here that she may should take up a trade for a few weeks, a few days a week. No, not at all. Although I do have some tap washers that need replacing. These churches were just small churches. Ours is a large church. But in a world that has been changed forever, we're kidding ourselves if we think we'll be able to return one day to our church and carry on as before. I came across a report recently from a group of, I think, Anglican churches in Queensland, and it was headed, how, in this, how is this crisis an opportunity for a strategic change? They observe that this will be an ultramarathon, not a sprint. They state that within their area, some church communities cannot continue in their current forms and some may have to close. But they add, this could be a missional opportunity to explore connections with other local churches, including other denominations. Their report concludes with three questions which pretty much echo, echo Tracy's thoughts in the email I mentioned earlier. They ask, during the COVID-19 period of change, what have we stopped that we don't want to go back to? What have we changed that we wish to continue? And what have we started that we now wish to adopt? We must realise that we cannot possibly do everything. The goal is not to cause us to feel even more overwhelmed, but to focus and discern where God is continuing to lead intentionally. Determining the next steps will require an immense amount of wisdom. Wisdom that can only ultimately come from God. Lots and lots of prayer and working together, as all good families do. Amen.